Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Hu, editor-in-chief of Eater. And I'm Daniel Janine, a producer at Eater. Amanda, who are we talking to this week and about what? <laughs> well, Daniel, this week on the show, we are talking to our editors in Las Vegas and New Orleans because I'm just curious to hear how those cities are doing right now. I think they are special cases uh, in the broader misery that is 2020. And then after that, we are talking to James Hansen, uh, an editor out in at Eater London, about the problems of no shows in that world and really, you know, in the restaurant world in general. And then you and I are going to talk about some other stories going on in the world and then we're going to be gone. Then that's it. That's it. it. That's the show. We gave the good tease. All right, let's get into it. So wait, hold on. If you like the show, please subscribe, send it on to a friend, you know. Give us some love in any way that you think makes sense. All right, let's get into it. Daniel, this week on the show, we wanted to check in on two cities that I'm very curious about, Las Vegas and New Orleans. Um, I'm curious about them because I think they depend pretty heavily on hospitality and on tourism. And both of those sectors are pretty shot right now. Uh, so we are bringing on Susan Stapleton of Eater Las Vegas and Claire Laurel of Eater New Orleans to tell us the state of their cities. Welcome, ladies. Thanks for having us. Uh, Susan, let's start with you. What is going on in Las Vegas right now? What is the state of opening? How's everything going? Well, Las Vegas kind of opened in multiple phases. Um, the governor shut down all non-essential businesses in it was about March 17th. So that meant all casinos, all restaurants, and all bars were closed for service. Restaurants could continue to do takeout and delivery. Um, by about May 9th, I think it was, he allowed restaurants to reopen for dine-in service at 50% capacity and with social distancing measures in place. Um, and then June 4th, he allowed casinos to reopen. And right now, n- everything's not open in Las Vegas. On this, Today, Bally's opened on the Strip. In fact, right now, about half an hour ago. And I think uh, a little more than half of the Caesars Entertainment resorts are open. Most of MGM resorts, which would be like Mandalay Bay, the Bellagio, those most of those are open, not all of them. And then uh, there are smaller operators like the Tropicana, which won't open until September. And so that means dine-in is open on the on the Las Vegas Strip. You can do whatever you want, basically, except for bars. Bars closed on July 10th again because we had an uptick in the number of COVID-19 positive cases. And are people flooding back into the casinos and into the restaurants or are people staying away? I'd say, look, June 4th, when everything reopened, there was a huge influx of tourism. Um, not Obviously not pre-COVID-19 numbers, but a lot of people were curious. They wanted to, I mean, California drives about 25% of the tourism in Las Vegas. Um, Arizona is another state that's, you know, a lot of people can drive here instead of flying. So, I think a lot of the tourists were coming from out, you know, those two states in particular, not necessarily flying in. Um, July 4th weekend, I believe the numbers were like 550,000 people came into Las Vegas that weekend, which was a fairly decent number, still not normal. But in the following weeks, it's really dipped down to about 300,000 people a week, um, which, which is pretty low. And 
a lot of that is also driven by um, conventions. We have zero conventions going on in Las Vegas right now. So a lot of that business tourism, you could say, just isn't happening here right now. And that's really, really, really hurting both restaurants and casinos. What's going on with the culinary union? I know you have a city with one of the strongest culinary unions in the country, or maybe the only strong culinary union in the country. Right. So the culinary union um, represents about 60,000 people in Nevada. Um, most of the major casinos on the Strip, the, their hospitality employees are part of the culinary union. And they filed a lawsuit against MGM Resorts and Caesars Entertainment calling for stricter guidelines for employees as far as COVID-19, meaning it seemed from what the culinary union was saying that, you know, if I was an employee, I would come into work, I tested positive, and the company wouldn't tell you that somebody tested positive. Um, so you didn't know that you need to go get tested as well. They dropped the lawsuit against MGM Resorts um, because they're going into arbitration right now. And they still have, an, the lawsuit is still open against Caesars Entertainment, specifically Guy Fieri's Vegas Kitchen and Bar, um, <laughs> where there were two employees who talked openly about how they alleged that their um, supervisors were like, well, you look healthy. You should just come to work. It doesn't matter. One Jesus. of our tested positive. And so. Sidell's was one of the other ones, right? At, yeah. at the other casino who they got a positive COVID case and they didn't yes. shut down. And that's, it's funny in my reporting, um, I get a lot of tips about this, about we had somebody test positive and they didn't shut down. They didn't disinfect. They didn't make us all go get tested. Um, I try to reach out to a casino, I'll just say one high-end casino, for example, and I get, you know, the PR, you know, this is private, we don't, we don't talk about employees' health status, and if this did happen, this is what would happen. I mean, it, it has to be incredibly scary for anybody who works at a casino that reopened, who's told you have to come back to work. Um, and you have to, you know, if you don't go back to work, you could lose your unemployment. Right. That's crazy. Um, and to shift over to New Orleans, Claire, am I right in assuming that a lot of the income for restaurants and bars comes from tourists in New Orleans? Is it a pretty tourism heavy scene? Yes. Um, an actual recent estimate from the New Orleans Business Alliance says that 60% of the people who dine out at restaurants are tourists. Wow. So how has the industry been dealing through this crisis? Much like in other cities so far, I think um, we aren't, we haven't actually seen a huge number of closures yet, but I think um, those will start to sort of roll in at the close of summer. Um, you know, spring tends to be the make or break it season for restaurants in New Orleans. Um, it's festival season. It's, you know, the best weather. It's, well, depending on when Mardi Gras falls, it's kind of might encompass some of that. And with everything being shut down right after Mardi Gras, restaurants really lost their, um, their busiest season. And for many, and also many service industry workers, it's when they make the bulk of their money for the year to stay afloat through the year, through some, summer, which is a traditionally historically slow season. Um, so I think right now we've seen, you know, a couple of big restaurants close permanently, uh, because of, um, income losses and, and the inability to sort of forge a path forward. But we're also seeing a lot of restaurants close for summer in hopes that, um, when tourism traditionally picks back up in September and October, that there might be a better, more viable chance at surviving, um, but yeah, I think, I think, um, New Orleans is certainly uniquely affected from the tourism perspective. We are not a populous city. It's, you know, the city proper is under 400,000 and, you know, we have 
an estimated at the high end 1400 restaurants. Um, so we've had a couple of predictions um, from various organizations as to the number that will close. Um, we have the, uh, the convention visitors board here in New Orleans um, saying that 500 of the, that they estimate that by October, 500 of the 1400 restaurants um, we could lose. When I inquired about how they got at that, number you know there's not a ton of science behind it so it is so it's all estimation but um we're definitely looking at a uh rougher than ever fall um which would again be typically when things picked back up picked back up so it's i think everyone's sort of bracing themselves for a deluge of of, of closures are people at all embracing dining outside in either of your cities where it's kind of miserable right now to be outside? I've been surprised at how much, I mean, people are certainly embracing it because I think there's just that, as we all know, that absolute hunger to, to have some semblance of um, a past restaurant life. So there's a, there's a bit of that. Um, there's one place in particular that has, that was fairly new, but, you know, it was, it's a converted gas station and it still has that big, you know, concrete sort of face out front. And that was, that's been sort of a, because it's so huge and allows for so much social distancing outside, that's been doing better than ever. Um, and people are really eager to, to do that. But it is, I mean, it's getting completely unbearable here. It's so, I, I, I cannot see that replacing or or even coming close to especially moving forward it's i can't see that continuing for the coming weeks and susan how's the desert uh, well july is hot and august will get hotter uh it's averages about 110 degrees here which you know even though you might say it's a dry heat it's mm. still a heat um i'd say i first reopened in may people were super excited to sit out on a patio uh, 90 degrees sounds hot, but 90 degrees in Vegas is absolutely perfect. I have a map of where to dine on a patio on the Strip, and I think every time I post it, I get some snarky comment about who's dining outside in 110-degree weather. Um, so I don't think – I mean, obviously, right now, that's not the solution. I think maybe once September arrives and the weather cools off, it's certainly a viable option again. Um, I'd say up December might be the only month that's kind of gross as far as weather goes and you don't want to sit out on a patio, but otherwise patios are kind of year round here in Las Vegas. This is kind of, I know this is a little bit of a silly question, but I feel like both cities uh, are destinations for bachelor, bachelorette parties. Susan gave a thumbs up. She's, she's pumped. <laughs> but uh, do, are you seeing, obviously this is anecdotal, but are you seeing these parties still happen and adapt to social distancing and, you know, being outside a lot? Like, are you seeing bachelor parties in casinos wearing masks and mouth guards with like Ryan's big day? Or are you, are, are these things like typically being rescheduled? Well, I'm going to, the other thing to note in Las Vegas is that while we have day clubs, which are like pool parties, um, those were not allowed to reopen. But caveat, they reopened as adult pools. So it's adults only. And the scene at pools is absolutely um, <laughs> terrifying to me and outrageous. so many people. Um, technically you have to wear a mask when you walk in, you have to wear a mask when you're sitting by the pool. The only time you cannot wear a mask is in the pool. And a lot, some of the pools have been, um, they haven't been fine. They've been, uh, we'll say the word educated <laughs> by either OSHA, um, the state OSHA department or, um, right. Clark County. Uh, has been Clark County oversees most of the restaurants on the Las Vegas Strip or most of the casinos um, on the Strip. 
So Clark County has been doing checks as well where they'll go in and just see what the mask adherence is and what the social distancing is. I'm getting off topic here. You asked about bachelors and bachelorette parties. No, but it's it's relevant. So they're just, because I, I am also curious at the ways that these things are being enforced. So they're getting drop-ins from uh, agents of these of these institutions who can, who are allowed to gauge and, and they're not getting like readings or anything, but they're kind of getting a feel for how much these codes are being stuck to. Right. And most of it, okay. most of that right now is, is obviously educational where they'll say, listen, you have all these people laying around next to a pool. They need to wear a mask. And it's right. your job to tell them they have to wear a mask to in, enforce this policy because it is mandatory in Nevada to wear a mask when you are outdoor, when you're outdoors and cannot maintain social distancing or when you're indoors anywhere, that's a business. I've, I've seen stories where there are a lot of bachelor and bachelorette parties that really came into town in early June when the casino right. was first reopened. Uh, Claire, are people still partying it up in New Orleans at all? Well, actually, yes, a bit. Um, I, I do know, you know, the first weekend that that bars could reopen, um, the French Quarter definitely saw an influx of, of folks, um, probably a mix, but mostly tourists, I would say. Um, I do think that now the, that the bars are closed again, that has probably, it, it would, my, um, I would imagine it to decline, although over the weekend there were, you know, there was a photo essay that, um, the newspaper did that showed that there are plenty of people still out in the French quarter. Um, as far as bachelor and bachelorettes, they, they're so easy to spot that I have spotted one or two. <laughs> Final question for Susan. What, how is Vegas handling buffets? That's an excellent question. Um, so when opened its buffet in, I think June 18th, and it's completely different service. You can't walk up and, you know, take a big scoop of everything. You have to order it from your table. Um, normally, every single buffet in town has a huge line of people waiting in, to get in. There, they're using a QSR code, and then you come back when your table is ready. So it's more like a restaurant, but you can order all you want to eat. Claire, in your... Talking to uh, culinary people in New Orleans, are, are people saying like, are people upset that they are so attached to the tourism industry? Are you are you feeling that at all? Like people would rather have something that kind of served more local, so they were, you know, they had some kind of protection when against times like this when uh, when there isn't much travel or even like in a recession when people aren't traveling. Yes. Um. There is a lot of sort of local economic um, organization conversations around how to diversify um, New Orleans's uh, income and and what it's right. what makes it money um, as tax revenues fall drastically. So um, and and there's. <laughs> There, so there's that, but that, you know, that's always sort of been because we're kind of getting right. hit by a two, you know, it's energy and gas and tourism, which are the two sectors Louisiana is most reliant on. So yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of conversation on how to, to, um, create money that isn't tied to such things. Although that has sort of always been a conversation that hasn't gotten very far. Another conversation that's, um, taking place is how to reimagine the French Quarter to be even more tourist friendly um, for the future, which comes with lots of um, complications because the French Quarter is a neighborhood where people live. Um, and although I do know it does seem that this time around, because this has been discussed before as you know, increasing pedestrian malls and, and sort of making it look like other um, more pedestrian friendly cities. This, this time, even from when there was attempts to revive the economy post Katrina, I think it's gotten more reception now than it ever has before. Um, because to that end, actually a lot of restaurant owners are saying that 
this is tougher than um, and and sort of more daunting than post Katrina. But there is there's a lot of discussion on how to um, create more locally driven economic growth. Um, not a lot of progress or or concrete ideas. Um, beyond that, I think a lot of people are hoping that the restaurants that do close are the ones that are oriented to tourists and that are a little bit more corporate backed and that right. it's the neighborhood spots that local love that will, that will pull out of this. So. That's interesting. Aren't those kind of conflicting ideas? Like let's make it more packageable and accessible to tourists and, and also only the local things will survive. They most certainly are, and I probably should have clarified they're coming from two different um, parties. <laughs> One being, you know, the 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 desire to make um, the French Quarter even more tour- tourist friendly is certainly more of um, city officials, economic development officials, and uh, it's more the restaurant owners and diners who I'm hearing from that are hoping that the restaurants that close are those that. Does Vegas even have those conversations or like, how can we make the Vegas economy more insular and, and less reliant on the outside? Or are they just like, if there's no tourists, we're just going to pack it up and uh, get out, take our cards and get out of here. I have heard no conversations about um, <laughs> being dependent on anything other than tourism. And it's not just a Las Vegas thing. It's yeah. statewide. This, I mean, the state gets its tax dollars from gambling. We do not have a, an inc- a state income tax. So when the 78 days that casinos were closed, the, the state generated no revenue. Um, it, it, what's kind of interesting about this is that, you know, after 9-11, there were all these conversations about, you know, the, it was three weeks of nobody flying. On the strip, it felt like they realized that there were people living in Las Vegas and they started to rely on more of the locals coming in. Um, I, that kind of happened again after 2008 with the recession then, but, um, and they've done some things to make it more attractive for locals. There's about 2.2 million people who live in the greater Las Vegas area. Um, but to make it more attractive for locals, you come to the strip, you know, they, there was paid parking for a while. They got rid of that. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to welcome people in, but there's a lot of competition for that on and off the strip. There's, there's twice as many casinos off the strip. Uh, Amanda, anything else? No, no. Thank you to you both for coming on. This was fun. Thank you for having us. Bye guys. Talk to you soon. Support for this show comes from Sylvan learning as a parent. You want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. All right, Amanda, we are we are back. Uh, there's a, a funny story. I think that, that's, you know, signifies some larger issues coming out of Disney World, which is obviously reopened with some restrictions, not at full capacity. Uh, I guess that they were having issues with people not wearing their masks while they were walking around because they were using the loophole or not loophole, but they were just they were eating and drinking, which is something you do when you walk around at Disney World. Disney World said you wear you must be seated to eat and drink and you must be wearing your mask Uh when you're not eating and drinking. That's how they've gotten around or that's where they've drawn the line in the mask versus no mask debate. Um. Hey, you know what? Makes sense to me. You know, I, I think it's a 
it makes sense. I sure. mean, obviously, yeah. you know, we're hearing a lot about how to about the the how masks and eating and drinking are will be conf- <laughs> fighting against their opposing forces. They will never. That is an eternal mm-hmm. battle that we'll be dealing with. Um, it is. But what do you what do you think? I mean, you love Disney World. Ah, uh, do I do yeah. I I do love Disney World. Do I think they should have reopened in Orlando while cases were spiking? No. And in Hong Kong, they're already having to reclose mm-hmm. Disney World. It's probably because people were eating while walking around. Because they were eating and walking around too much. So I don't think it's a good idea that they are open. I do appreciate that they are trying to crack down on any kind of quote-unquote loopholes that may exist. I mean, there, people eating and drinking while walking outside, I think it's probably not the riskiest thing to be doing in the grand scheme of risky coronavirus related mm-hmm. activities. Um, I'd be much more concerned about being on an indoor ride in Disney right. world with any other human. Cause I don't trust that people would keep their mask on. Like you get inside the haunted mansion, you get in your little pod, sure. Take your mask off. You know, like some of those people are not going to keep their mask on. And then you're inside with all the circulated air. That's the that's the bigger concern for me. Was it in China that they said scream on the inside if you're on the, Japan, uh, in Japan in Japan on the roller coaster? Try not to scream. So yeah, like there, it's an amusement park. So yeah. I think there are a lot of outdoor focused safe activities, but in Disney World there are a lot of indoor rides. And in my mind, and right or wrong, it's the big divide between the indoor outdoor right versus the walking around eating a turkey leg, you know. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, you know what, though? I will say that walking around eating a turkey leg, to me, if I'm thinking poster of Disney World, it's me. I don't know why I'm putting myself on the poster, but it's me cruising around with a turkey leg. Like, I want to be on a ride with a turkey leg, you know? Well, they don't allow that. Well, see, they've been just (laughs) cramping my style for years now, I guess. Anyway, right. I'm I'm glad they're trying. I, I don't you think can't, it's you're not glad they're to trying. Go, they're they're kind of well, trying. whatever. They're kind of trying, but yeah, I don't I don't think it's what's really gonna stop this thing. Um, okay, you have a you have a note in this doc with an article, and you've called it "Good News for Dan." Did you click on the link yet? I've seen the link. Oh, okay. I was hoping you could tell what is good news for me. Okay, so the headline is, even during a pandemic, small plates and family-style dishes are here to stay. Now, Daniel Janine, for those who do not know, is a famous meal sharer. He will take a bite off of a dish at the person <laughs> that the person next to him is eating, whether he knows them or not. He does not care. No okay. shits given. I'm saying right. this out of love, not cr- t- critiquing you. No, about. understood, but I... It would be after a conversation about sharing you would the dish. Not just I wouldn't just steal fucking it. go forks no. wild. <laughs> no, yeah. you would just. Although, if I wasn't going to get caught, I might take a bite off someone else's plate. So okay, so go on. You just negated what your last. No, but I'm saying <laughs> I wouldn't want someone to just watch me. Like I would never want to be in the position where someone's like, "Did you just eat off my plate?" Like that. <laughs> but you would do it if they weren't looking. I'll tell you how far I've gone. I've never stolen a bite off someone's plate when they've gone to the bathroom. I would consider that. Uh-huh. Um, if people leave a lot of food on their plate then and it looks it. immaculate and they've gone, I would consider it sampling whatever fare. And not just because I'm greedy or whatever or, or no, hungry. No, you're curious. I'm you, curious. You want to know what it And I don't like. believe in traditional boundaries. So wait, has that... <laughs> I know you haven't been back to restaurants, but would you behave differently now? No. You would still. Yeah. Because it's not, it's not, it's not transmitted through the food. Yeah. You know? So I would be more likely. So anyway, this story is about how. Because I want to go back to normalcy. People are still ordering plates to share. And I think there was some speculation at the beginning of all this that, oh, this pandemic would be the death knell for family style meals because everyone's going to want their own contained entree and that's it. And they're not going to share germs with anybody else. Right. Actually, Um, a thing that I was initially scared of because, you know, that thing that you love to, to talk about me, me not, uh, me, me willing to dive into other people's food. mm -hmm. Um, that actually, you know, that's like a once every six months kind of occurrence, right? Sure. Uh-huh. But what I was actually worried about 
when everything, I mean, the thousandth thing I was worried about, but uh, a thing that I was going to affect my, my dining is I feel like we'd gotten to a point where you go to a restaurant with other people, at least I do. And it's just accepted now that everything is being ordered to share. Right. Right. Like we've passed the point of having individual plates. So I was worried that, that we would lose some of that progress. And I think we probably still have. We will, we will still lose that progress, but I think in general, the people who are dining out now, chefs say are very much ordering the same way they were ordering before. And anecdotally, I can say, I found that to be true when I go out, like I went out last night and my friend and I were both like, okay, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. And then we're like, eh, can we just share everything? And so you have to have the conversation versus before it was just assumed. And you were like, wink, antibodies. Yeah. He also, yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, But I think when people decide to dine out together now, you're already in it, you know? It's like I'm sitting, I'm sitting across from this person. We're having a close conversation. If they have it, I have it. I think that's accepted. We've already, I'm already getting it from them if they have it. So, well, I'm glad to know that because, you know, I, I, I will say that a thing that irritates me is like, I've heard, I've heard stories of people like partying together in small spaces and being like, dude, let's bring extra hand sanitizer. And it's like, if you're going to do it, I'm not saying that's me, but it's like, if you're going to, if you're going to do it, just admit the defeat. Like you admit that you're in close proximity with someone, you're, you're sacrificing your boundaries. Not sharing dishes is not going to help you. I'm hugely biased on this. Yeah. People have to be smart about what the risks are. We talk about this all the time. It's not a like binary thing. Right. And yeah, hand sanitizer isn't going to help you if you're inside a space with someone really close to them. Next up on the show, we have Eater London associate editor James Hansen to talk to us about no shows, no shows at restaurants and how that is a big deal right now because people need to make reservations to eat safely. Is that right? Yeah. Um, So no shows have been a subject of choice for angry luncheon chefs for quite some time but in the last couple of weeks they have really come back with a vengeance it seems like uh so the most prominent london chef who's talked about it is a guy called tom kerridge who is sort of tv famous in the uk but probably not in the us i would say who posted a a still (laughs) from the film 300 to instagram The Sparta, like, CGI-ish film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and In which he called diners selfish and disgusting and various other things because 27 people didn't show to his restaurant when they looked to do so. Um, wow. And in the wake of that, because he's got quite a significant Instagram following, um, a number of other chefs of mostly similar profile you know, went online to say the same thing that they'd experienced a slew of uh, considerate selfish diners not telling them they were canceling their reservation. I feel like it's a favorite complaint of chefs and restaurateurs about how people just don't show up and they don't call and then they're holding this table and they lose business. Um, I think uh, that was one of the big reasons why talk was such a a hit with many people. Yeah. And that was, I think Nick Kokonis's big argument is like, you will never have no shows. People should prepay for this time. Yeah. Like, why are you giving away this real estate for free? I think it's definitely a universal issue. I think the interesting thing about it in London, and this may be true in the States as well, is that there seems to be like a unification between chefs that no shows are bad, but there mm-hmm. is definitely not consensus on what they should do about it or whether they should do anything about it. And so, it strikes me as a strange thing to spend lots of your time calling your customers selfish when you could implement steps to minimize no-shows, but many chefs choose not to do so, like introducing a talk-esque system or talk itself because they believe it. Or to be, pre, prepayment of some kind. Yeah, because they believe it to be inhospitable. Mm. Yeah, The anger over a no-show is less about, oh, 
we're so busy, this could have gone to a walk-in and that person Mm -hmm. got turned away. And it's more that, well, we bought all this food or we have, we staffed in a certain way because we were expecting this number of people Mm -hmm. and you didn't show up. And now we're kind of screwed because there is no, you know, there's no one else who's going to take this spot or eat this food. Yeah. I bet people are no showing more often too, because if they don't trust the restaurants that they might make a reservation and then get cold feet at the last minute or just have a partner who's getting cold feet. So there's mm-hmm. more insecurity there. Right. And also all, all you need is one person from the group to have second thoughts and then the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's definitely more yeah insecurity on both the side of the restaurant and the consumer at the moment yeah. Yeah, for obvious reasons. And I guess, you know, restaurants have to respond to whatever number of reservations they get in terms of, like you say, staffing, ingredient procuring, and everything that goes with that. Whereas I think in part because restaurants have so embraced online platforms like Book a Table, Open Table, et cetera, that make booking easier for both them and for customers. I think what they've maybe failed to realize is that that necessarily makes cancellation easier too, mm-hmm. which is not a good attitude to have, but I don't think that it's caused purely by the entire restaurant going population being selfish as chefs would sometimes have you believe. I believe that the no show is selfish, mm-hmm. uh, full stop. And I think, uh, often it's better to call even after the reservation has started in mm-hmm. the absolute worst case scenario being like, Hey, I fucked up because then at least they'll know for that 10 minutes, like whatever you can do to let the restaurant know. I mean, I'm sure there are circumstances where you're not going to be able to call yeah. whatever, but yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I am, I'm willing to say like, yeah, I, I'm not willing to say as if some, it's some grand statement, but I think diners are selfish who don't, who no show. Right. But, but, a, but a cancellation is fine. It's the no show mm-hmm. that Dan, you take issue with. If you book one of the three outdoor tables that some New York restaurant has and you cancel that day or even like within a few hours, that sucks too. But I just think the no show is indefensible. Cancels like, yeah, you got to cancel sometimes. But, you know, you got to know that it, it's going to be difficult for the restaurant to rebook that spot, especially when they don't have that many spots now. I agree with you that I think in general, no showing is not good. I think one of the issues is that both in terms of no showing and also in terms of implementing solutions, like a lot of the time, both diners and restaurants get obsessed with kind of edge cases, which shouldn't inform a strategy that you take, but get a disproportionate amount of attention because they are edge cases. So for example, if you don't honor a reservation because your partner has just died, you're probably not going to think about canceling a restaurant, but that shouldn't mean that no showing isn't selfish. And by the same token, there was a story in a lot of British newspapers last year where a restaurant that does have a no show fee basically ended up charging a family of five, 660 pounds because they cancelled, they didn't cancel, but they didn't do so because a relative had died. And both of those things are very extreme examples. How close a relative? <laughs> I think it was, well, it was a whole family. So it was a mixed closeness. Mm-hmm. It was a granddad and a dad. That's a horrible question there. I can't this was the whole thing that I feel like Nick Kakonis at Alinea has talked about a lot. Um, like the kinds of excuses they would get of like every day it was someone whose relative has died. And I think they want to be sensitive to that, but also he thinks of it as like an event, like you buy a ticket to a concert, Mm. you're never going to get a refund. And I think that can be true for certain restaurants, but not all restaurants. So there are certain restaurants where you can get away with saying, Hey, this is an event you have to prepay. And that's that. Mm -hmm. And then there are other ones where it's like, no, that's not, that's not going to fly. And no one's going to be empathetic to your, needs there anyway well james hansen thank you so much for uh coming on telling us about this uh the rise in no shows and the rise in chef anger yeah i mean i think it's going to become even more widespread and even more talked about as like where where we are as restaurants start to open back up again i mean we're still under this phase of opening up and then closing and then opening up Mm -hmm. but i think when we get to a new normal this will be a, a huge issue so this is like a little a little preview. I look forward to seeing which prominent New York chef loses their mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daniel, 
I want to talk to you about bars, specifically in New York, um, all over the country. Oh, no. I don't want to talk about that. All over the country, and I'm sure your country, too. Uh, there are all kinds of weird local regulations around bars and what bars can do. And in some places, they're just completely closed. In some places, they can do to-go cocktails. I remember in Chicago, they could do like liquor, but not cocktails, whatever. Yeah. In New York, uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, bars have been able to offer to-go drinks. Uh, right. The caveat is they have to also sell you food at the same right. time. Right. So the, my favorite bar that I go to, they always throw in a bag of chips. Okay. Uh, and that's how they've been getting around this. Or they, yeah, they'll usually throw in a bag of chips or some little snacky thing that doesn't cost them anything and they don't have to deal with food. Uh, our governor, Andrew Cuomo, has been a little upset about the scenes around New York City. A lot of people gathering, a lot of people partying. And so there's been a lot of back and forth where he's been threatening that bars have to offer more. They have to offer a sit-down experience. Uh, they have to offer actual food, not just chips. So yeah. now he's saying the SLA, the State Liquor Authority, updated their guidance saying bars must now serve food that is, quote, similar in quality and substance to sandwiches and soups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh I don't know how well this was known, but early there was a bar, I think it was New upper somewhere outside of New York City, uh, maybe upstate New York, but they just put the one, they didn't even tell you, but they just put the $1 chips on on, on everyone's bill, call, and they called them Cuomo chips, and that was just like to, to skirt the, right. the license. First of all, it's hilarious because you're going to have debates about what ha is similar in substance to a sandwich. Or a soup. Or a soup. Uh, <laughs> like a soup in July right. in New York. It sounds like such old man legislation. Right. right. Like, it, like, I would eat a soup for lunch. Soup is fine. I know. It's like, and you should be eating a soup and a sandwich <laughs> anyway because that is what constitutes a good meal. So, you know, I went back to this bar that was giving out chips when the, you yeah. get your cocktail. I went there on Sunday and they, with my drinks, came this uh, little cheese sandwich. Okay. Two slices of white bread yeah. with a slice of cheese in between. Yeah. And I was like, do I have to take this or can I give it back to you to reuse for the next person? Because I don't want the sandwich. And they reused it. Um, they reused the sandwich? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was in a plastic bag. I was just like, I don't want that. It's just funny because... They make a law for these people to abide by the law now. They're just going to waste all this food because no one wants these stupid cheese sandwiches. But you yeah. get it as part of your order just so everything is legal. I mean, for me, I'm prone to getting lost in the silliness here. But I actually feel like the bigger shift is this suggestion that all bar experiences will have to be sit down, right? Like yeah. all of like you'll have to have, a, you know, a table for X number of patrons um, in order to buy cocktails, right? And like, there is the worry that they'll kill cocktails to go unless there is table space for those people. I actually don't think they would kill cocktails to go in New York because right. the outcry would be so large. Right. You right. know, like the lobbyists would be too powerful. So he's coming <laughs> up with these middling kind of like, I'm yeah. trying here. Don't right. you see I'm trying? That, but that's just my... That might be naive of me. We should note that a few bars actually in Queens had their liquor licenses suspended um, indefinitely for having yeah. massive gatherings. So well, and that's the, what the they crackdown should do. is real. That's what they should do. And that's what they we've seen this in Chicago as well of have people crack down, have inspectors do surprise visits. And if you are breaking the rules and a lot of these places are breaking the rules, then you give them fines then you shut them down. But don't make every single bar... Yeah. Just have yeah. some arbitrary right. sandwich rule. The Cuomo soup and sandwich is obviously silly. My worry is the overreach, though. And like, I, so one night when I was in New York, I went to get takeout cocktails. I definitely saw the big crowd forming. And I, I just saw firsthand that the, the bar was like, guys, you're going to fuck us. Please disperse. Yeah. And then people kind of like dispersed to the left and right, but there were still big pockets. They weren't deaf. They weren't 
outside of the bar, but to any observer, it was clear that they were associated. So I just, I worry that it's, it's, it's actually hard. I, I think if you're doing takeout cocktails and you're not, and you're allowing people to drink on the street, you know, with varying levels of legality, that this is gonna, it's going to, it's going to happen. So I, I actually don't, I don't know what the right answer is because I, I think it has been a good source of revenue for a lot of these bars. Yeah. Obviously the big crowds of, 200 people like swarming around the West Village treating the street like it's the next fucking meat market, you know, <laughs> is is really wrong. But Right. Well, and they did do a change also where they're making bar owners responsible for what's happening directly outside their right. establishment because it used to be that, oh, you know, they're doing it out there. It's not my problem. So now they do have to actually push people away and say, like, get off my sidewalk. Get out of right. here because I'm going to get in trouble for it. And... I think you're right that maybe there's there's no there's no good answer to this because you don't just want to shut down all the bars, but also people mm -hmm. are inevitably going to congregate. I had a funny thing here because uh, I you know it's the same thing you're supposed to get something little to eat, um, and I was somewhere where they're like, oh yeah, so we need to charge you an extra dollar because we're just going to throw something we have to throw a bag of chips in or whatever. But I was somewhere where they like they forgot the chips, and I was so I just like opened my bag and it was just the wine <laughs> or whatever. And I was like. Oh, okay. Uh, like, where cool. are my Doritos? Where are my Doritos? Yeah. Up next, um, a big story in the in the hospitality world. Uh, Danny Meyer, who you know is fam was famous for or f taking it for being the first major restaurateur to uh, take away tipping from all of his establishments. Um, Caveat being saying yeah. first major restaurateur because people take issue with this. So not definitely not the first, but the first, like he had a lot of very high end restaurants. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that he was the patron saint of the, uh, hospitality included movement. Yes. Um, and in his efforts to reopen his restaurants, he made the claim, he's like, we're, we're going to back to a tipping model because I don't want to take away any of the income that my employees could have possibly gotten right. from the public. So we are revoking this this policy. Um, it you know it reopened the tipping conversation. Vince Dixon, our uh, reporter, wrote an amazing piece about like how tipping is is a huge systemic problem and it, it encourages a lot of a lot of disparity in in the hospitality world. Famously, right. Racist, sexist, terrible, terrible. Um, and it has roots in slavery. And we should not be having this model. And I think it's a testament to the people like Danny Meyer. And Amanda Cohen is a big name who I think was a pioneer right. here too. She just doesn't get as much press because her restaurant group is smaller. But it was really important for these people to go uh, no tips to show that it could be done. Um, the problem is over the last five years so many restaurants tried it and then realized that economics just didn't make sense and had to go back right um danny meyer was making this bet that you know what minimum wage is going up my costs are going up everyone's costs are going up if i can do this first i'll my prices will seem higher but eventually everyone's going to have to raise their prices because all of their labor costs are going up and he was kind of making I, yeah. that bet the bet that he would end up with all the good talent. Yeah. Right. Um, and it was a pretty intense bet because he lost a lot of front of house staff that wanted tips um, and had to raise his prices in order to, you know, cover this. And he took major losses, I think. Um, so it's sad to see that it didn't totally pan out. Um, and right. his, He's saying that he's still going to use revenue sharing from the company to make sure the back of house still yeah. makes enough. Cause that was part of the reason why too, is he wanted parity between front of house and back of house. Um, mm -hmm. but that doesn't go, that doesn't erase the fact that the tipping model is so racist and sexist. Um, and is bad. It's bad. It would be nice to have someone like him continue to push for, a better model. It's hard given the government, you know, like the United States has a sub minimum wage. Other countries do not have that. Um, it's better in some states than others. There's, I think, seven states where they don't have a sub minimum wage. That is the, you know, the tipped wage that waiters right. make. Um, and you see much better equity in those states. 
Um, but it's a long struggle to try to get every state to sign on to that. In other words, it would be better if the state forced you to pay front of house staff a much higher minimum Mm -hmm. because then you wouldn't be incentivized to give them all the tips. You wouldn't, they wouldn't need them to survive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. it, It is sad. I mean, it's clear that it's clear to me that he was going to, he would have held out if it wasn't for, uh, the pandemic, if it wasn't for COVID. So it sucks that this forced him, this forced his hand. Well, and when he made the decision, he was in a world of a tight labor market. Uh, And that was one of the biggest concerns of restaurant owners for so long was like, how are we going to get good labor here? How are we going to be able to afford good labor here? And now it's like, I think that problem is at least for the next year or so pretty much wiped out. Yeah. Well, it's a sad reality of the current time. And I certainly hope, you know, one really like tragic uh one tragic route to a silver lining will be if people appreciate the restaurant experiences more that maybe people will be willing to pay more for food and and be willing be open to these models where you're seeing the full cost up front and you're seeing these expensive yeah, dishes yeah i mean i'm also hoping that, that as a bigger in. picture um, thing this moment pushes everyone to rethink the structures of this country, including minimum wage and the safety net for hospitality workers. And so maybe there can be more momentum for the movement to get everybody to get rid of the sub-minimum wage and to get everybody on a more equal playing field. And like, I don't want to be too naive, but I feel like now is a moment where that kind of thing can build momentum. Yeah, I hope so. I think with a lot of things, it looks like we're looking at temporary fixes instead of like a long-term um, you know, revolution in the way that these salaries are, are structured. So I feel like the prominent voices are fighting for immediate government aid. And I, I don't hear that much about the minimum, the tip minimum wage being looked at. I mean, it was getting looked at before right. this, but now that I think a lot of progressive ideas are getting a lot more momentum now than they had before. You know, like even if you look, I don't want to get too much into politics, but even if you look at the kinds of policies that a very centrist Democratic candidate Mm -hmm. was putting forward, Joe Biden, now like he's being forced to be much more progressive. And I think that's happening at the local level as well. Well, I hope so. Anyway, on that pleasant note, Amanda Clute, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Daniel Janine, always a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to next week. God knows what we'll get up to. Us, you know. God knows. If you have any ideas, digest just eater.com. DM Dan on Instagram. <laughs> hey, it's worked before. It's worked before. 